Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Scarborough is a relatively quiet suburb of Toronto, Ontario. Known for its abundance of rural acreage to the northeast corner of the region, Scarborough facilitates many of Toronto's last remaining farmlands. Roughly 30 minutes northeast of Toronto's downtown proper, Scarborough's traditional neighborhoods would remind you of any middle-class community you'd find in either the U.S. or Canada. Neighbors wave, stop to say hello, and even chat with one another during morning walks with their dogs. It's the type of place you wouldn't hesitate raising a family. If you were to turn off Knowlton Drive onto Lawndale Road, just four houses down and across the dead end of Argo Road, you'd find the Ryan family. Although not their first home in Scarborough, husband and wife William and Susan Ryan moved into the modest one-family residence with their four boys, looking for a fresh start. However, their fresh start was not the kind most of us are familiar with. This wasn't the kind of, quote, new beginning a family necessarily looks forward to. You see, the Ryans weren't relocating to a new part of town for, say, an exciting job opportunity or the chance at a decent real estate investment. Instead, the Ryans had to move, or at least they felt that way. They needed to escape the gossip and drama that the family was met with on the daily when neighbors glared at the Ryans from their driveways, whispering to their spouses any time a member would return home. The Ryans, although normal and hardworking people, were plagued by a dark cloud, a darkness that was brought on solely by one member of their family. The word causality in physics relates to causation, or the more commonly known phrase of cause and effect. The idea that every action has a reaction. It's a fascinating concept when realizing how one person's decisions can trickle down and affect the lives of so many people over the course of time, or in more extreme cases, almost instantly. It's strange to consider how a domino-type effect created by one person's actions can disrupt an entire universe, or in this case, the world of an entire family. Surely, we can all relate to at least wanting the best for our families, whether or not we happen to have the best relationship with them or not. In most circumstances, it's innate human nature to do what we can to help our own flesh and blood. But what happens when our best just isn't good enough? when that sacred code of family isn't reciprocated, but rather is taken advantage of and then discarded, left out at the curb like the weekly trash, tossed away and forgotten. This is the story of a family that went above and beyond for their son, a family that desperately tried to give their child every opportunity in life to make it on his own, yet they watched as he fell short each time. That man is Brett Ryan, and Brett Ryan as a secret, a secret based on his own hidden agendas, built on a foundation of greed, lies, and fraudulent personas that eventually collided, crushing the lives of the people that loved him the most. This is the tragic tale of one man's double life and how it ultimately changed not only the once calm town of Scarborough, Ontario, but the lives of the Ryan family forever. Brett Ryan was born December 30th, 1980, in Scarborough. He led a pretty normal life by all accounts, growing up in the Toronto suburb. He had a lot of friends, was outgoing, and was an all-around fun guy to be around. He had a bright smile and big blue eyes, and gelled and styled his dirty blonde hair to a casual spike in the front, adopting the classic 90s surfer look that was quite popular at the time. Brett looked like a kid you wouldn't be surprised to see in an ad for Abercrombie or Coolwater Cologne. He was innocent, charming, and well-liked. The Ryan family consisted of Brett's parents, Susan and William, and his three brothers, Chris, Leland, and Alexander. The boys collectively were all only a few years apart, Chris being the eldest brother, and Alexander, or AJ as most knew him, being the youngest. Brett's father worked as a budget manager for the Toronto Star newspaper, and his mother Susan was a stay-at-home mom, keeping up with the house and busy with four young children. Brett seemed to love his family, even thanking both of his parents and brothers in his high school yearbook. Brett graduated from Sir Oliver Mowat High School in 1997. He was involved in his community 
and had even volunteered his time as a Little League umpire, in addition to visiting sick youth at Toronto's Sick Kids, a major children's hospital focused in pediatric care. On the surface, Brett was showing characteristics of an exemplary member of society, even as a young man. But as Brett entered adulthood, during the often strange transition of stepping out of adolescence and into the real world, well, that's when things began to change. It was the year 2007. Transformers had just exploded at the box office. Sean Kingston's Beautiful Girls hit the Billboard Top 40, and Brett Ryan was broke. He was deeply in debt, $60,000 to be exact, and with a mere $200 to his name. He was 26 years old, had just dropped out of college, and subsequently landed back at his parents' house in Scarborough. Unsure of what he wanted in life, he began working part-time as a house painter. During his years at college, Brett found himself in and out of unhealthy relationships, and frequent breakups often caused him to feel more depressed. Brett made some poor decisions in his unrequited love interest when it came to spending money he never truly had, attempting to shower women he dated with gifts by charging them to credit cards. Needless to say, these romances ultimately amounted to nothing in the end. To an extent, this is relatable to a lot of us. Love can make you do some irrational things. We've all been there. But that's exactly the point. Many of us have been in the exact same predicament that Brett found himself in, as a 26-year-old young man trying to find his way in the world. In fact, it's fair to say that most college students have some sort of financial debt hanging over their heads, and some ultimately move back in with their parents to regroup financially before finally making it on their own. Most of us can accept this notion. Most who have been in this situation have the ability to say, that's okay. We then brush ourselves off, learn from our mistakes, and begin to move forward. But this wasn't enough for Brett Ryan. He didn't want to be most people. He saw himself as more. Sure, he was a smart young man who knew his potential. There's nothing wrong with having high expectations for oneself. But when Brett was forced to move back in with his parents, while simultaneously noticing that his peers were beginning to make it on their own, entering their respective career fields, Brett began to feel a great deal of shame. Although he had the full support of his loving parents, Brett was sickened with himself, embarrassed, and harboring a tremendous sense of inadequacy. He began to feel beneath the friends that surrounded him. He viewed his own situation as unacceptable, and in no way, shape, or form would he ever allow himself to be seen as, quote, poor to anyone who knew him. Not to mention, Brett also liked to show off. He wanted to portray himself as someone who was doing well financially. He also had an insatiable desire for the finer things in life, without having the money to afford them. He often purchased clothing from high-end retailers, such as Versace, where he had once purchased a $400 pair of jeans. Not exactly a prudent purchase for a 26-year-old man living at mom's house. It's fair to surmise that Brett didn't have his priorities in line, but who really does at age 26? He had a relatively large student loan debt from a four-year university, one that he never even graduated from. But he continued on with his frivolous spending habits while generating no meaningful income to keep up with his lifestyle. Pressure began to push on the walls surrounding Brett Ryan's mind as the reality of his desperate situation began to close in. Fearing the inevitable, Brett eventually came up with a plan. But it wasn't a plan to save money from his house painting job, or a plan to get his own apartment, or to re-enlist at the University of Toronto. No, that would take far too long. Instead, Brett Ryan was going to rob a bank. On October 20th, 2007, Brett Ryan walked into the CIBC Bank at 371 Kingston Road in Scarborough, Ontario at 11 a.m. He had disguised himself with hospital bandages, having wrapped them tightly around his face and head with his arm in a sling. He calmly approached the desk of the local branch and handed the teller a note stating something to the effect of, Stay calm. I have a gun in the sling. $2,000 cash or more. Go. The teller frantically complied, yet only gave Ryan roughly $1,100 in cash. He then calmly walked out of the bank, got into his vehicle, 
and drove back to his family home, nervously maintaining the speed limit. After stripping himself of the disguise and arriving back to his parents' home, Brett Ryan sat by the foot of his bed in his childhood room, half-heartedly expecting the police to arrive at any moment. But as the minutes turned to hours, Brett realized there were no sirens, no blue lights reflecting through the windows and onto his bedroom walls. Nothing. The police never showed up. Brett was actually stunned. He couldn't believe it. Suddenly, he begins to accept that he might actually have gotten away with robbing a bank. And although the cash grab from his first heist wasn't enough to put a dent in the $60,000 of debt he had accrued, it was enough to buy some supplies for his next bank robbery. Brett was instantly hooked. Over the next eight months, he would go on to rob a total of 13 banks and evidently became rather good at it, even brazenly deciding to rob one bank on Christmas Eve. He would sometimes spend weeks canvassing the financial institutions and their adjacent properties casually scoping out the general area for both getaway routes as well as positioning of security cameras. His style of theft and robbery even evolved. After transitioning from the severely wounded hospital patient to an elderly character, shuffling slowly into the bank lobby, sporting eyeglasses, a fishing bucket hat, and a fake yet professional movie-grade beard. Ryan also used the costume change to his advantage, believing it may throw off the police perhaps leading them to believe there might be two or more robbers on the loose. The more banks he would rob, the more efficient he became, improving his technique each time. And while the general premise and approach remained the same, the dollar amounts requested from the tellers gradually increased with each robbery. Having no prior criminal history or documented fingerprints on the books, Brett Ryan was able to evade police and continue robbing banks, sometimes on the same street as one another and over an extended period of time. Although his identity remained unknown, the persona and image caught from surveillance cameras facilitated a media craze, with news stories spreading like wildfire as outlets dubbed Ryan the fake beard bandit, soon becoming a local phenomenon as well as an infamous household name throughout Toronto and eventually the entire country of Canada. Ryan's costume surveillance screenshots were released to the public in order to assist police in their hopeful arrest. But just as Brett Ryan had felt that desperate desire for cash, police began to feel an even greater desperation to stop him. Stay calm, have gun, withdraw $4,000, large bills, no games, 60 seconds, go. This was the note written by Brett Ryan as he walked into his fourth bank robbery on June 20th, 2008. Although the handwritten note was nearly identical to every other time he'd shuffled slowly into a bank lobby hunched over, pretending to be an old man. Something felt off. Brett proceeded to limp past the main entryway, adding his signature strut-like walk as part of a planned, harmless, and unsuspecting demeanor. But then, something told him to stop. He pondered what he was about to do for the next several moments, as he could audibly hear his heart pounding in his chest. Today isn't the day. Something's wrong. Following his intuition, Brett turns to exit the building and begins slowly walking out of the bank and back to his vehicle. But just as he was about to get into his car and drive home to his parents' house, officers swarmed in. He was caught. The eight-month-long string of robberies had finally caught up with him, and Brett couldn't believe it. The one day he felt something was amiss, he was right. But how did they catch him? Even with Ryan's calculated planning and nearly a year-long run of successful getaways, the fake beard bandit's reign of robberies and terror was now over. Police had been on to Ryan for weeks by this point, after months of investigation and painstakingly reviewing what surveillance footage they had obtained from multiple bank locations. Authorities eventually learned that the vehicle used as the getaway car was a Ford sedan. Although this wasn't enough information alone at the time, a break in the case would soon come after, when an officer was finally able to make out the license plate from one of the surveillance videos. Once entered into the Registry of Motor Vehicles database, sure enough, there was Brett Ryan's smiling face, still sporting that harmless, hair-gelled spike in his driver's license photo. Police had their man, and Brett Ryan's all-time low would soon plunge even further to a new and unimaginably desperate rock bottom. Ryan would ultimately get away with a grand total of $54,000 in cash from his collective robberies. He had stolen just shy of the $60,000 he convinced himself that he needed to solve all of his problems. 
In January of 2009, Ryan would finally see his day in court. He was initially facing a whopping 29 total charges, but would ultimately plead guilty to only 16 of them. Eight counts of robbery and eight counts of disguise with intent to commit an indictable act. Friends, family, and even representatives from the Sick Kids Hospital, where Brett Ryan had once volunteered, had either written letters of support or shown up in person at his trial in support of the mild-mannered man they all knew and loved. Brett clearly had an amazing support system, even after committing so many felonious acts over such a long period of time. His family and friends pleaded to the court, stating that Brett was simply a desperate ex-college student trying to find his way, insisting that the eight months of robberies were not of his true character. The Ryan family couldn't bear to see their son go away to prison for what could very well be a decade or more if he received the maximum sentence. When finally given the opportunity to address the court himself, Brett Ryan had this to say. I would like to say how sorry I am for the trouble and trauma I've caused everyone. I do realize that regardless of my problems, there is no excuse or any sort of justification for my extreme and selfish actions. After hearing Brett Ryan's statement and before imposing the sentence, Justice Paul Robertson would go on to address Brett Ryan directly in court. Few individuals who come before me have the understanding of the impact of their crimes that you have indicated to me. You are a person who has integrity, who has given himself to others, and who is truly a productive member of society. You are not a youth, but you, in my view, are youthful. Regardless of how sincere the man came across and how much he had contributed to his community prior to the robberies, the judge would ultimately sentence Ryan to three years and nine months in prison. He would go on to say, quote, The sentence struck the right balance of acknowledging the seriousness of Ryan's crimes without crushing all hope of rehabilitation. Clearly showing great leniency on the young man, the judge was convinced that Brett Ryan would serve his time and come out a better member of society. Before Ryan was taken away by officers in front of his loved ones, who tried so desperately to keep him out of prison, the justice of the court left him with these parting words. You're a lucky man, Mr. Ryan. You have a family behind you. I think that family will stick with you. Judge Robertson showed an extreme amount of compassion and mercy on Brett Ryan with his final ruling. However, he would later realize that letting Brett Ryan off the hook so easily would be one of the most grave and dangerous mistakes of his entire professional career. While in prison, Brett's family stood by him every step of the way. They would constantly visit him, especially his oldest brother, Chris. Brett didn't have access to a prison library while incarcerated so his brother Chris would go to the local library in Scarborough and photocopy pages of entire books for his little brother, eventually bringing them to the prison for Brett to read, delivering the stapled black and white computer papers to him during visitation hours. Brett was extremely lucky, even behind bars, receiving generous love and support from his family, which never wavered through the entirety of his sentence. But his luck didn't just end with the support of his parents and siblings. After just 12 months of his 45-month sentence, Brett Ryan was released on parole for good behavior. He was effectively given a second chance at life, and by early 2010, he was back at home with his parents in Scarborough. Upon exiting prison, as one could imagine, Brett's world would be harder now than it had ever been before. He was a convicted felon with no college degree, and the only true skill set of his involved gaining permission to be in and around people's homes. Needless to say, things weren't looking good for Brett Ryan. After he was positively ID'd as the fake beard bandit, no one wanted to hire him. No one was going to let a man that robbed 13 banks in an eight-month span near their property. Brett was subsequently forced to file for bankruptcy, and the only work he could find were low-paying retail or kitchen jobs. One might assume this would be a great opportunity for this individual to humble himself perhaps to finally gain a sense of true work ethic and to learn the value of a dollar earned. But that is simply not how Brett Ryan's mind operates. He would soon take a position at the Swiss Chalet, a restaurant in town, but surely this wouldn't last long. Although all hope seemed to be lost for Ryan, he still wasn't without support. He had a strong family unit that stood by him, even while neighbors gossiped that the fake beard bandit was living next door. The family even moved out of the neighborhood just to help Brett get a fresh start and distance themselves from some of the drama. 
His parents went even further by re-enrolling their son at the University of Toronto to help him finish his degree in biophysics. Brett also began to see a therapist, and it seemed as if he was truly making an effort to do everything he could to rebuild his life from ground zero. He was effectively at rock bottom, but sometimes reaching that bottom is what it takes for people to begin crawling to dig their way out. In 2011, things would change drastically for Brett, this time for the better. This is when he would meet his new girlfriend, Kristen Baxter, a successful physiotherapist who owned a waterfront condo in downtown Toronto. Brett was set up with Kristen on a blind date arranged by a mutual friend, and the two instantly hit it off. And although Brett surely had made some poor decisions in his past, by no means was he stupid. He knew he'd have to come clean about who he truly was to Kristen if he were to make things work. There was simply no avoiding that. So before he could allow Kristen to realize she was dating the fake beard bandit, Brett confessed everything to her. Much to his surprise, she was willing to accept him for who he was. She was willing to let the past remain in the past and focus on their future together as a couple. Brett was finally on the right track. He loved Kristen and she loved him. Yet, even with this newfound romance, Brett would reach yet another roadblock just before turning the proverbial corner in life, bringing his new plans with Kristen to a screeching halt. It was 2013. Brett was back in school and the fresh flame of an exciting new relationship was ignited. The couple had been dating for almost two years by then when they chose to take the next step and Brett moved into Christian's luxury condo with her. This certainly wasn't a college dorm room or spare bedroom at his parents' house like he was used to. Kristen had built a nice life for herself prior to meeting Brett. She was a successful and hardworking woman, and her beautiful downtown waterfront condo with a swimming pool and rooftop grill was exactly the type of high life Brett Ryan had so desperately tried to lead. With the couple's new life together, seemingly aligned and after just a few years of dating, Brett would eventually propose to Kristen, and she would happily accept. However, after buying his new wife-to-be a new diamond ring with no real source of income, and no prospects of ever landing a reputable job, Brett Ryan began to lie again, reverting back to his old untruthful ways. Though Kristen was aware and even accepting of Brett's criminal past, Brett felt the urge to begin weaving an entirely new web of lies. You see, even though Brett was in more financial trouble than he'd ever been in before, he was ironically reaching a new peak of self-imposed urgency, a desperation to portray that he wasn't struggling. Brett now felt his greatest need to convey that he had financial stability, when in fact the only funds coming in were that of petty cash provided by his mother. These feelings, of course, were a direct result of his new relationship with Kristen. Brett convinced himself that he had to live up to the same economic status that his partner had already earned and achieved. He couldn't admit to his successful physiotherapist fiancé that he was flat broke. Although presumably she would understand as Brett was now back in school, and Kristen could certainly relate to the hardships that come along with furthering one's education, Brett began to feel the pressure again, and that old familiar feeling of inadequacy began to creep back into his life. The same shame he felt when he dropped out of school for the first time, painting houses while living with his parents. There was no way he was going back to that life. He was unable to focus on his studies due to the constant thoughts pertaining to his financial duress and so he eventually surrendered to those pressures in 2015 and dropped out of college once again. Sadly, it's around this same time that Brett's father passed away. Dealing with the loss of his dad and the burden of financial stressors, one might understand why Brett dropped out of school again, and his family, according to past trends, probably would have stuck by him and supported him, as they had before. What isn't within the boundaries of normal comprehension, however, is what Brett Ryan decided to do next. Brett chose not only to lie to his recently widowed mother and new fiancé about dropping out of college, he decided to take the lie one step further and tell them that he had in fact actually graduated. He was simply unwilling to admit yet another failure. His soon-to-be bride would surely leave him if she knew the truth, so rather than owning his current situation, he avoided it entirely and created a new fraudulent one altogether. 
Brett's conscience was stricken with enormous guilt by this point, and yet he continued to grow his fantasy of being a recent graduate from the University of Toronto, when in fact he hadn't graduated and was still several thousand dollars in debt with no bachelor's degree to mention. His loved ones, although confused that there was never any news of any graduation ceremony or functions, instead opted to believe Brett. They wanted to believe that he had finally made a substantial change in his life, but the only change Brett was willing to make was the exacerbation of his web of lies until they became so dangerously out of control that there was literally no turning back. In 2016, the unthinkable happened for Brett Ryan. Somehow, after applying to multiple jobs in the city, he received a welcome phone call. He was offered a position at a thriving tech company in Toronto. Brett Ryan was ecstatic. This was his big break. He immediately told both his fiance and his mother, overwhelmed with joy and relieved that things were finally turning around. At last, Brett had turned the corner. Unfortunately for Brett, however, the fake beard bandit spoke and celebrated all too soon. Only days after receiving that phone call, the company called Brett back with bad news, informing him that they decided to rescind the job offer after learning that the identity of Brett Ryan and the fake beard bandit were in fact one and the same. Brett was crushed. It was as if the world just kept punching him in the gut. And as soon as he caught his breath to stand back up again, he was knocked back down with another proverbial blow to the ribs. His past was haunting him and he couldn't escape it, no matter how hard he tried. And from what we've learned so far of Brett's personality, there was no way he would concede to yet another defeat. There was no chance he would come clean to his future wife and family about losing the job opportunity. So, he didn't. He lied yet again. Brett Ryan pretended as if that second phone call never happened at all. So very proud of Brett, his family praised him for his hard work, and his mother was overjoyed. She knew all along that Brett would persevere someday, and that all the love and support they provided him with finally produced a long overdue positive result. If only his father could see him now, she thought. As any mother naturally would, she wanted to express her compassion and decided she would reward Brett. With his father having recently passed away, and with the exciting news of his new career, Susan delivers a shocking surprise. She tells Brett that he will be made the executor of the family estate, meaning that once Susan passes away, Brett would be in charge of the family home and their remaining assets. Brett couldn't have been happier with the decision, yet it may well have been part of his long-term plan all along. Although this news of becoming the executor of his family's estate was a check in the win column for Brett Ryan, it also posed a new problem added to the already huge mess he had on his hands. With so much at stake, he'd now added to the already extremely heavy burden he was carrying. He now had even more reason to disguise the truth about his job offer. And with no career, surely his mother would revoke him from eventually taking over the home. And on top of that, Brett's wedding was just a few months away, and he had no way to pay for it. He took his lies to new heights and began getting dressed at the condo every morning for a job that didn't exist. He'd leave the house, park his car nearby, and when he saw his fiancée drive away on her way to her real job, he'd drive right back to their home in downtown Toronto. Sometimes Brett would even ride the Toronto subway all day long, with no destination thinking for hours on end of what he was going to do. By this point, his family fully believed that Brett was a successful college graduate with a promising career in information technology well underway, neither of which were true. And yet, Brett couldn't stop. He continued to go along with the fabrications and began making grandiose plans for a bachelor party in Montreal with his friends, as well as shopping for new homes with his future wife, all of which he was doing with no income. With the wedding less than a month away, Brett finally reaches a breaking point. He just couldn't live with himself anymore. He broke down to his mother in her Scarborough home and admitted that he had no money, no degree, and was living a complete lie. Susan Ryan could not believe her ears. She was beside herself in disbelief. How could her son put her through this again? He begged for her help, explaining that he could never let Kristen know what had really been going on because he would lose her. Brett's seemingly perfect life with the expensive waterfront views would be destroyed, 
But rather than bail her son out like she had time and time again, his mother decided that enough was enough. She finally put her foot down. Susan Ryan wasn't going to enable her 35-year-old son any longer. She gave Brett an ultimatum, telling him that he needed to come clean to his fiancée about everything, or she would be forced to tell Kristen herself. Susan scolded Brett, advising him that he couldn't begin a marriage based on such severe untruths. Brett was furious. He wasn't hearing any of it. No way in hell was he going to allow his mother to reveal his dark truths to his future wife. His mother gave Brett a deadline. She told her son that he had until his wedding day to admit the truth to Kristen about having no job, no money, and no college degree or else. But instead of taking personal responsibility, Brett chose another route. He devised yet another plan. And this time, it didn't involve theft, but murder. He decided he was left with no choice but to eliminate his own mother. If she wouldn't listen to him, Brett felt he would be forced to kill Susan Ryan. In his mind, this was the only way he could be 100% sure that his future wife wouldn't find out about the lies. He had to act before Susan had the chance to speak with his fiance, and fast. Brett obviously wasn't allowed to purchase a firearm as he was a convicted criminal, but after calculating a plan for a few days, he eventually settled on a more easily obtainable weapon, a weapon that was silent didn't require any special background checks or permits, and couldn't be traced by ballistics or gunpowder residue. Brett Ryan's weapon of choice was a crossbow. Even after the initial dispute, revealing he'd been essentially living a double life to his mother in regards to his non-existent college degree, place of employment, and his relationship with Kristen, Brett decides he isn't happy with the outcome that came from telling the truth. Brett agrees and tells his mother he'll comply and confess the lies to Kristen. He promises her that he'll do the right thing. However, he only said this to appease his mother temporarily, buying himself some time while he solidified his plot to kill her. In the days that followed, Brett continued a routine he had arranged with his mother, helping her around the house with simple tasks an agreement the two had made after Brett's father died in exchange for a small amount of cash. Brett's motive now was not the money nor to help his mother at all, but to use his opportunity and time alone with her to carry out her murder. While his mother was preoccupied with daily chores, Brett hid his newly purchased crossbow as well as the arrows on a high shelf in the garage. He bought the weapon used and paid cash to avoid any means of detection. The model was a Barnett Recruit U-30 crossbow with bolt-type arrows, meaning the projectiles were under 16 inches long. Weighing in at a mere 6 pounds, the bow itself is meant for children or entry-level archers, but in Brett's logic, he had concluded that this particular type of bow would be less gaudy and cumbersome to transport as opposed to the adult full-size version. It's lighter, he thought, and easier to use. This was not an abrupt purchase. Brett took his time researching the weapon that would best suit his needs. He knew that no one would look on the shelf in the garage, and when the time was right, he'd take his mother out of the equation entirely. Brett became so obsessed with holding on to his newly acquired upper-class lifestyle that he was willing to do just about anything to protect it, including turning on his own flesh and blood. On Thursday, August 26, 2016, Brett got dressed for his imaginary job and Kristen Baxter, his fiance and wife-to-be, got ready for her real one. Kristen kissed Brett goodbye and left the condo at around 7.30 a.m., with Brett claiming to be right behind her as he tightened his necktie professionally outfitted for his non-existent job. He then realized the coast was clear. Once Brett confirmed that Kristen's vehicle had left their driveway, he began making some final touches to the elaborate plan he had devised to murder his own mother which was set to be carried out that very afternoon. After finishing up what he was doing at the condo, he would drive to his mother's home in Scarborough. Brett had already decided that he would give his mother one last chance to see things his way before killing her. Unfortunately for Susan Ryan, she had no idea that the refusal of her son would cost her her own life. When Brett confronted his mother, she stood her ground and a heated argument ensued. As the yelling escalated, Susan helplessly called her oldest son, 42-year-old Chris Ryan, 
as she could feel the situation was becoming out of control rapidly. Susan asked Chris to come to the house to help her defuse the situation and hopefully to talk some sense into his younger brother. Brett immediately sensed things were not going in his favor and decided that it was time. He then stormed out to the garage in a blind rage, heading for the top shelf where the crossbow had been hidden for several days. However, his mother was right behind him, following at Brett's heels, still attempting to reason with her son. With his mother in such close proximity to him, he knew that he couldn't reach for the weapon without her noticing. And because it takes time to load a crossbow, never mind properly aim one, Brett realized it would take far too much time, thus giving his mother a chance to escape. So without a second to waste, and with a sudden change of plans, Brett grabs a single arrow instead and lunges towards his mother, plunging the sharp point directly into the side of her neck. As his mother screams in complete shock and disbelief, Brett continues to mercilessly stab her. In the midst of his violent fury, Brett becomes worried that the act is taking longer than he had anticipated. He thought she would die faster. Now concerned that his mother's screams might alert the neighbors, Brett reaches for a nearby yellow rope lying on the garage floor. He then wraps the rope as tightly as he can around his mother's neck, strangling her to death as she gasps for air. Susan was now bleeding more profusely from each arrow wound on her neck and cheek every time Brett pulled his impromptu ligature tighter around her neck. Only after the oxygen slowly leaves Susan Ryan's lungs and Brett intimately feels the life of the very person that brought him into this world pass through his clenched and bloodied fists does he release the rope. His mother was finally dead. With his brother Chris on the way, Brett quickly reached for his crossbow, began loading it, and hid inside of the garage, awaiting his arrival. As Chris pulled into the driveway and came walking through the garage door, Brett approached him from behind. He pulled the trigger, shooting his brother from the rear, before Chris could even lay eyes on him. The arrow entered through the back of Christopher's neck, the tip piercing straight through, left protruding out of his mouth. Chris Ryan, hunted like a wild animal by his own brother, died instantly, only a few feet away from his mother's body. Brett was now frantic. With two family members dead in his mother's garage, he scrambled for a way out. But before he even had time to think or attempt to hide, clean up, or flee, his younger brother AJ would come walking up the driveway. AJ hadn't even approached the bloody scene when Brett stormed down the pavement meeting him halfway, armed with a sole arrow in hand, the same arrow he had just killed his mother with. Brett then thrust the sharp bolt into his brother's neck before he even had a chance to react. AJ struggled, screaming as his older brother relentlessly forced the instrument deeper into his windpipe, perforating his carotid artery. Once AJ stopped moving and Brett was convinced that he was dead, he stood over AJ for a moment before quickly turning around in response to another familiar voice yelling from behind him. Brett motions his body toward the home to see his last remaining brother standing inside the front doorway, having just bared witness to the bloody scene. It was his other brother Leland. Upon noticing the horror, Leland screams at the top of his lungs in terror and confusion, locking eyes with Brett, asking what had happened and begging him to call 911. Brett hadn't accounted for his third brother Leland to be home at the time, but he had been upstairs taking a nap while the attacks took place just outside the home. He awoke after hearing the screams of his family members being stabbed to death. After Leland notices AJ motionless and bleeding in the driveway, and Brett ignoring his repeated request to call 911, he runs back inside the house to call the police himself, but Brett instantly sprints after him, arrow still in hand. Brett eventually caught up to Leland, and smacked the phone from his hand just before he could finish dialing the police. The two then began wrestling one another throughout the home as they struggled up and down the stairs, marking blood along the walls as Leland fought for his life. He eventually broke loose from the clutches of his crazed brother and was able to escape, darting across the street towards a neighbor's house. Leland sees his brother AJ now at the end of the driveway as he'd briefly regained consciousness and attempted to crawl toward the street, desperately trying to get away. Leland bursts into an elderly man's home directly across the street from the Ryan's residence, crying aloud to the man, urging him to call 911. AJ, barely alive, was clinging to life at the end of his mother's driveway as paramedics were dispatched. 
By now, Brett had finally accepted his fate. He realized this was it for him. There was no way he was getting away with this. Not anymore, at least. Leland had retreated to the neighbor's house, and the cops were surely on their way. That was it. He was going back to prison, but this time for the rest of his life. Knowing there was no successful way to make a break for it, Brett casually decided to walk to the kitchen of his family home, where he grabbed a bottle of water from the fridge, left the door wide open, and sat on the front steps for the last time as a free man. As he defeatedly sipped his bottle of water, exhausted from just brutally murdering the majority of his entire family, he calmly waited for police to arrive. Brett eventually heard sirens from what sounded to be about a mile away, the same sirens he expected to hear that day back in 2007, but never did, when he robbed his first CIBC bank just after 11 a.m. This time, things were different. They'll be here any minute, he thought. As multiple patrol cars came racing off Knowlton and onto Lawndale Road, Brett put his blood-soaked hands in the sky as police arrived at the Ryan family residence at house number 10. Authorities found the 35-year-old man soaked in blood, sitting on the porch despondently with no emotion on his face. At first, unsure if Brett was a victim himself, they asked Ryan if he was hurt or in need of medical attention. Brett proceeded to tell the officers, quote, It's not my blood. Taken aback by his statement, police were stunned with what Brett Ryan said next. I should have driven him to the hospital. Referencing his brother AJ, who lay lifelessly in the driveway. The guys in the garage are dead. Crossbow to the head. It was me. Leland was quickly rushed to the hospital after paramedics arrived. Brett Ryan's mother Susan, age 66, his brother Christopher, 42, and his brother AJ, just 29 years old were all pronounced dead on the scene. As Brett Ryan was taken into custody, storm clouds were forming overhead. Police and crime scene detectives hurried to contain the perimeter, setting up caution tape, tents, and placing a large orange tarp over A.J. Ryan's body. Authorities acted quickly as they couldn't risk the possibility of any evidence getting destroyed as it began to rain. Police still had no idea what led to these horrific events nor the extent of just how long the buildup of this tragedy had been brewing. All they knew is that they had three confirmed fatalities, and that the son of one of them, identified as Brett Ryan, had just willingly confessed to the murders. As soon as police confirmed that this was indeed a triple homicide, authorities became fearful for the safety of Brett's fiance, Kristen Baxter. As multiple officers rushed to the waterfront Queen's Key condos in downtown Toronto, they quickly realized that this terrifying event was far from over. Police cautiously made their way into the condominium and up to the shared unit of Christian Baxter and now murderer Brett Ryan. Authorities forced entry after gaining no response when making their presence known. As they entered the couple's unit and made their way up to the bedroom, they immediately noticed a potential threat. Officers examined several contraptions and electronic devices connected by multiple wires strung about the room. As police first laid eyes on the matrix of cords, their first instinct were that this very well could have been an explosive device, rigged and set to detonate at any moment by Brett Ryan. Residents of the Queen's Key condo building were swiftly evacuated, as authorities were now considering this to be a secondary crime scene connected to the homicides in Scarborough. After the entire condominium building was secured and bomb squad units were sent in using robotic cameras, they eventually dismantled the elaborate configuration of electronics. Police weren't sure of the gravity of the situation, yet decided to err on the side of caution as the condo held many residents, including a daycare. Unwilling to put any more innocent lives at risk that day, police made sure that everyone in the building exited quickly. Though it was later confirmed that Brett did indeed set these devices up himself, they weren't bombs. Instead, they were intended to be his cover-up. Brett Ryan had systematically arranged several computer devices, including his cell phone, tablet, and a laptop, and had meticulously engineered the electronics with objects such as wooden spoons attached to the blades of oscillating room fans. Each fan was set to its own individual timer, and once activated at their designated times, programmed by Ryan, the fans would begin to spin, thus pushing the objects secure to the fan blades in a downward motion, which would then tap the laptop's keys, simulating actual human use. The fans would prompt internet tabs to pop open on his computer, as well as his tablet's touchscreen. Ryan had set these devices up to create his alibi, 
a digital footprint of sorts that he planned to use to account for his whereabouts at the time of the murders. While out killing his mother and subsequently his two siblings, Brett would have proof that he was never at the Scarborough family home at all, but instead was inside his condo browsing through YouTube roughly 20 kilometers away. He calculated this intended timeline of events carefully. Surely, the courts couldn't convict Brett if he was at home on his computer at the time of the murders. Well, that's what he thought. After the scene at 200 Queens Key Way was cleared and was no longer considered to be of any threat at roughly 5 p.m. that evening, officers began shifting their collective and full attention back to the home on Lawndale Road. Upon further investigation of the violent aftermath, Authorities would come across a duffel bag located inside of the garage. Inside of the bag was an array of disguises, not unlike those used during the string of bank robberies years prior. The discovery would only cement the authorities' assurance that not only did they have the right man in custody, but that Brett Ryan also had plans to escape that afternoon. Days following the attack, Toronto Police Sergeant Mike Carbone would address the media for the first time, reporting the current status of their investigation. On Thursday, August 26, 2016, sometime around 1 p.m., the Toronto Police Communications Bureau received a 911 call to attend number 10 Lawndale Road with respect to what was reported to be a stabbing. This dwelling is occupied by a woman and two men. Uniformed officers from 43 Division attended this address and located the lifeless bodies of three individuals. All three individuals were observed to have physical trauma and were pronounced deceased at the scene. The attending officers from 43 Division observed the now known Brett Ryan at the scene where he was taken into custody. Sergeant Carbone then opened the floor to take questions from local media were desperately awaiting answers for how this bizarre act of profane violence could have possibly taken place. Detective, is it fair to say that there was more than one projectile used? It's fair to say that, yes. Do you need to reload this sort of weapon or do they have multiple bolts in each? My understanding is, uh, and I don't profess to be an expert in crossbows, but it is one of these actions where it does take some time to, uh, to draw back the bow and then insert the actual bolt into the channel and then fire it. So I'm not aware of a multiple shooting crossbow. If there is one, it'll be the first I've heard of it. But you're right, it's, uh, it, it does take some time for this to occur, okay? We're both men killed by the same crossbow bolt. Sorry, we're both men killed by the same crossbow bolt. No. After a brief publication ban ordered by local police until the identities of those involved were confirmed, reporters would soon be granted the opportunity to conduct interviews with the neighbors who had heard or even witnessed the unimaginable events that day. All of a sudden I heard uh, somebody screaming and sort of angry screaming and banging at their shed, telling him to calm down, be quiet. Uh, it was going on about five, uh, within ten minutes, all quiet. You don't expect this to happen this close to home. That's a weird choice of weapon, I think. I mean, you don't hear that too often, but I guess they're around. They're easy to come by. I never believe it because I never hear any fight or any yelling or something like that. Just like that. I never believe it. Reporters then spoke with the neighbor that made the 911 call after Leland Ryan came barreling through his front yard and into the man's home desperately seeking help for his severely wounded family members. When the neighbor attempted to come to the aid of A.J. Ryan, after phoning in the emergency, he quickly realized that he was already far too late. About one o'clock yesterday afternoon, you said all of a sudden you heard a knock on the door. It wasn't a knock. The guy was hammering on the door. I opened the door and he practically fell into my arms, practically knocked me over. Um, he staggered into the front room and fell on the floor. He said, call 911. My brother's bleeding in the driveway. Make sure the police come, make sure the police come. He emphasized the police. Uh, he passed out for a couple of minutes and then he came to again. I gave the phone to my wife and I said, I'm going to go over and take a look. The chap was laying and the driver was covered in blood. So I came back and I said, give me a towel and I'll see if I can stop the bleeding. So I went over with a towel and I looked at too much blood. I, could, I didn't want to take any chances on disturbing, you know, making things worse. 
Brett Ryan went to great lengths to plan the murder of his mother. But just like any other goal he set out to achieve in life, his scheme didn't exactly pan out the way he had hoped. Whether he intended on killing his two brothers that day or if they were unfortunate collateral damage to a murder plot gone terribly wrong is still up for debate. What is clear, however, is that Brett Ryan was allegedly planning to walk away from at least one homicide undetected. At the time of his arrest, police noticed he was wearing two layers of clothing, leading them to believe that Ryan planned to shed his first layer of blood-soaked attire in true chameleon fashion after killing his mother, Susan Ryan. Police theorized that Ryan used this tactic to escape with a fresh set of apparel, helping to change his appearance, but also as a method to minimize potential DNA evidence that could have potentially connected him to the crime. What Brett didn't account for was the amount of blood that would be shed that August afternoon by his own hands, as it had completely soaked through both outfits. Authorities also surmised that the potential murder of his family may have been Brett's plan B. As executor of the family estate, and with his entire family now out of the picture, Brett could escape in full disguise and then play the role of the grieving victim to his fiancée, Kristen, and the two would live happily ever after. Police suggested this could have been Brett's way to deflect Kristen's eventual concern if and when she ever found out that Brett lied about his financial issues, dropping out of college, and the lies he told of ever holding a well-paying tech job. Now feeling sympathy and compassion towards the loss of Brett's family, Kristen would feel bad for him, and the lies he'd been telling her for years would be put on the back burner. In this police theory, Brett would now have the family home all to himself if he needed a place to fall back on. And just like all of Brett's previous plans, they always seemed to have been a bit half-baked. With a literal duffel bag of disguises, wearing two sets of clothing at the time of the murders, his electronic alibi configurations, and not to mention Ryan's verbal confession to police, authorities felt confident they had a sufficient amount of evidence to charge Ryan with first-degree murder on all three counts. However, as most of us know by now, the laws in Canada are a bit different from those in the United States. The courts would first need to decide if Brett Ryan was in fact criminally responsible for his actions that day, before determining what his final sentence would be. But on July 28, 2017, almost one year following the horrific murders, now 36-year-old Brett Ryan pled guilty to one count of first-degree murder in the death of his oldest brother Christopher, as there were clear elements of premeditation in his death. As Brett anticipated Christopher's arrival, he took the time to load the crossbow, and then spent additional moments waiting for his brother to enter the garage. This was enough to prove that he had planned Chris's murder to some degree. He would eventually go on to take a plea deal for two counts of second-degree murder for the deaths of his mother Susan and his brother AJ. Brett Ryan would also plead no contest to the attempted murder of his brother Leland, who luckily survived after the attack. By pleading guilty to the murders, Brett would avoid a jury trial, and Leland Ryan the only surviving member of the Ryan family, spoke up at his brother's preliminary hearing. He told the judge that he forgave his brother Brett for his unthinkable actions, but that he did not want to see him. The judge would ultimately deliver his ruling according to the guilty pleas entered, as well as the consideration of avoiding any further emotional trauma brought upon Leland Ryan, as he would be required to testify if the case had gone to trial. In the end, Brett Ryan was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years for the murder of Christopher Ryan, as well as two additional life sentences to run concurrently for killing his mother Susan and brother AJ. In regards to Brett's fiancée, Kristen Baxter, it was clear to authorities early on that she had no knowledge whatsoever of Brett's plans for that day, nor was she aware of the completely fabricated double life her future husband had been leading for the entirety of their five-year relationship. Kristen was set to marry the man she thought she'd spend the rest of her life with, just three weeks from the time of the murders. There surely are no words to accurately depict the presumed utter disbelief and devastation that Kristen was met with when informed what her fiancé had done, and that their entire life together was essentially a complete lie. Kristen Baxter has remained private for obvious reasons and has never publicly addressed this tragedy. The only known evidence of how Kristen has been dealing with these events are from those closest to her. A loved one of Kristen would go on to provide the following words on her behalf in regards to her emotional state after the murders. She has crumbled into a million pieces weeks before what would have been the happiest day of her life. 
Just four days before his murder, Christopher Ryan made a Facebook post regarding the annual Canadian National Exhibition Fair that comes to Toronto every summer. Chris was asking friends if they thought the fair would be worth the money that year. During a brief dialogue in the comments section, a friend asked Chris about his availability in regards to having time off from work. Chris's paraphrased response was, Vacation board. Only two weeks. It's Friday and Saturday, September through December, and my brother is getting married on a Friday next month. Less than a week after this post, that same brother that Chris had requested work off for, in order to attend his wedding, would murder him in cold blood with a crossbow inside of their mother's garage. This post is only a testament to how much Brett Ryan's family truly cared for him, what they were willing to do for him, and how little Brett actually valued their love and support in return. In the beginning, Brett Ryan faced adversities that the majority of young adults encounter when trying to find their place in the world. Yet he decided to veer onto a dark path that most of us would never even consider. He was as impatient as he was selfish, as greedy as he was evil, and his efforts of deception far exceeded his work ethic. They say a mind is a terrible thing to waste, and Brett Ryan was a perfect example of that. He wasn't willing to put in the time it takes to organically achieve one's goals in life. He wasn't willing to put an ounce of honest labor toward the successes he so eagerly convinced himself he was deserving of. Perhaps what makes this story so shocking is just how relatable the start of his adult hardships truly were to that of any average young member of society. Almost all of us have been faced with troubles with regard to money, student loans, or finding the right career path. Yet the right thing to do, the usual course of action in overcoming these obstacles, is to put your head down, work hard, and earn the material things we all desire in life. With that, in most cases, comes an invaluable sense of understanding, gratitude, and respect for what it takes to flourish and put our respective professional worlds into orbit. In the beginning, Brett Ryan wasn't much different than you or I, but over time, he built his entire identity, his look, his clothing, and even his love life on a cracked foundation of lies. His fantasy world grew so out of control that he eventually reached the point of no return. And no matter how many disguises he had cleverly packed away, he could never truly hide what he actually was, a failure. With his pending marriage set to collapse, his non-existent tech job on the brink of exposure, and faced with the prospect of having to start back at square one all over again, Brett Ryan chose a different path, the one he viewed as having the least resistance, murder. In his twisted logic, it actually made more sense to eliminate the people that loved and supported him the most, rather than come clean, admit his flaws, and get on living an honest life. The Ryan family were devout in their unconditional love for Brett, regardless of the immeasurable amount of pain and embarrassment he'd put them through over the years. His father, who managed the finance department of the Toronto Star newspaper, was forced to go to work every single day at the very media outlet that would go on to print the lion's share of the fake Beard Bandit headlines at the time of the robberies. Only a year after Brett's father's death, that same newspaper would print the vast majority of coverage of the Ryan family murders. Brett humiliated his family time and time again while they were alive, and devastatingly enough, has somehow managed to do so even after they're gone. Brett Ryan is not criminally insane, as was clearly substantiated by the courts after meeting with several forensic psychiatrists before his sentencing. He is simply the most dangerous breed of narcissist. He had no money, no moral compass, and now he has no freedom. He was always without family values, and now he is without family. <laughs>